Hey Product Lead family, product leadership is becoming an increasingly important subject in our field. Therefore, I invited a guest who has lived to tell a story of how a team of seven engineers can conquer a global niche. Simon was one of first engineers hired at Vitabase, where he led AI initiatives. He has seen the company grow to the point where it was used daily by more than 50,000 companies, including Swisscom, N26, Revolut, SpaceX, and Adidas. Now he helps companies to build high-leverage teams, adopt meta-work, and organizational structures to become more effective. I'm your host, Maya Voye, and together we are heading to the wonderful product-led leadership journey with Simon Bilak. Simon, hi, how are you? So happy to have you in the podcast. Hi, Maya. Thanks for inviting me. I'm fantastic and really eager to get on with this because like, the topics we're going to talk about today are some of the most dear to my heart. More so on my side, because I don't know what is MetaWork and I cannot wait to figure it out. So let's jump to the question. But before we do that, let's try to warm you up a little bit by asking you a lifestyle question. Simon, before we start with all the leadership questions, tell us what are the three lessons that you have learned from your when life living? Right. So for a bit of context, I've spent almost like a year and a half, a bit more than a year and a half, full-time traveling around Europe and North Africa in my vintage VW van. And the main lessons learned, if I try to kind of connect them still to the other topics we'll have, um, definitely one thing that this was was a stress test for a lot of the things that we've believed in at Metabase and how we're organized in terms of this. Like it was definitely in some ways a stress test for asynchronous remote working. It was also a stress test in terms of just you know, work-life balance way more because, you know, once if you live in a house, like normally in a city and everything, it's way easier to just get drawn into, you know, doing a slightly longer days and then eight hours become 10 and 10 become 12 and so forth. While if you're traveling around and your entire life is packed in a van, like some of the things, that some of the conveniences we take for granted aren't so readily available. So you do have to spend more time just, you know, getting groceries and, you know, finding the next camp spot and things like that. Also, sometimes maybe just the availability of internet is not that good and have to kind of take all this into account. So I felt it was like a fantastic stress test. And I'm very happy to say that it turned out that, yes, our process can easily handle even something like that. On a more personal level, it is an amazing sense of freedom. I think that this is also something that helped me grow professionally as well and i will maybe get to that but like I'm a, I'm a big proponent of this notion of skill stacks so that you have like various different skills that are not necessarily directly interacting with one another but when put together they make you this unique individual that can solve problems and approach problems in a unique way and i also consider just like things that like personal growth you get from such a different lifestyle is definitely something that then I can then see also reflected into my approach to leadership and just thinking about work and thinking about myself and how much, you know, like just the sense of how comfortable I am with the notion of freedom and how much freedom I then try to inst- like instill in others. Wow, that's been amazing. So what you're telling us is basically if you can live for the way in life, you can conquer everything, right? It's definitely like a good test of many things. I'm sure that like 
there are people who for whom just turns out that it's not a good fit and that's fine. I'm not a big proponent of such one size fits all prescriptions, but I definitely think it is an experience that does shape you. I know for one that I am itching to get back on the road, so definitely that's not the end of van life for me. All righty, cool. So let's dive right into the topic. Uh, we'll talk about product leadership today, of course. And the first question inevitably is, how do you personally, Simon, define it? Huh. I'll start with a kind of generic leadership and then we can kind of look at how what how that reflects on a specific like, the product. Yeah, sure thing. Let's do that. Um, and I'll start with an anti-pattern. And this is something I see a lot when I'm coaching various executives that they tend to conflate management and leadership. And for me, there's like a fundamental difference. Like management is way more short-term oriented or more kind of like task oriented. But then what happens is that if the leader just kind of can't step out of their shoes of a manager, they will just inherently, they will start to micromanage rather than looking into like long-term strategy and how to empower people. So that's kind of something that leadership is definitely not. I also think that, you know, if you try to decompose leadership, that's a hard problem that's been attempted numerous, numerous times. And I've read quite a bit on it because I find it fascinating. But I think that a lot of this kind of analysis, again, conflate things such as charisma with leadership. And I don't think you need that. Like for me, what it boils down to is a few very simple ingredients. One of them is communication. That's another like anti-pattern I see with many people I work with that like once you get started, you know, like peeling back at the reasons why something went wrong, why your team is underperforming, why they haven't delivered what you expected to deliver, why quality was poor, why a certain member of the team is underperforming. All of the, like, I would say in about 80% of the time, if you go like back in this chain of why, 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 what you come to is the point where there's a problem in communication. And this problem of communication was always first and foremost from the direction of the leader down to their team. It was like there was a lack of clarity. There was a lack of alignment. It wasn't clear what are the business goals? Why are we doing this? It wasn't clear, you know, how does success look like? And when you don't have that, when you don't have this whole like chain then starts because then people, even amazing engineers or product people that have trouble picking the right balance for various trade-offs they have to make because they don't have the entire picture. And and also because they don't have the right information that what you get reflected back from them is going to be skewed again and you will have the the mismatch is going to become bigger and bigger between how you see things, but you've continued just like a part of that. And then what you get reflected back is just like, again, like a part of what you said to them. And then you get more and more sidetracked into some kind of very narrow understanding of what we're doing and that then kind of causes problems down the road. So definitely communication is a big one. The second big thing for me is like leadership should be fundamentally about enabling people. So that's in multiple ways. One is just kind of removing obstacles and the other one is growing and helping level up people. And again, it's currently it's quite popular to talk about how, yes, we should be meant, you know, a leader should be a mentor to everyone on their team. I wholeheartedly believe that. But I also see that a lot of people approach this in a wrong way. Because what they're doing is they are mentoring or they're coaching for the position rather than for the person. And I think that's kind of misplaced it here. And this is, again, you have to have this certain level of self, I suppose, assurance 
and self-confidence that you are fine with actually working to make that person better rather than just kind of trying to go for the, the, the things that will have direct impact on your company. Because in the long run, that's what you want. You want the best possible people and you want those people to grow. And then that, in, in consequence, will have benefits to, um, to the company. But if you go like, you know, if you skip that step and you just try to directly go to the skills that you identified as necessary, I think that you simply don't have, on the one hand, you don't have as good results. And on the other hand, what also happens is that simply you do not get the same level of buy Because leadership is not something that you can achieve with a title. Leadership is something that you fundamentally, and to earn it, you do have to show that you're wholeheartedly trying to better your team, better the people on it, and looking at various blockers and friction points they might have and aggressively removing them. Now, to kind of to circle back to the product side, I think everything I said so far, of course, also stands for the product side. But I think what is also important in terms of product leadership is that you are a strong voice of all the stakeholders. I think that's kind of one of the core things because like one of the fundamental problems that a leader will, especially in a product context, will need to solve is what to say no to and where to focus on. And to, to do that, like the... In my experience, the leaders that do that best are those that can navigate between the needs of the customers, but not or users, but not just kind of, but also actually their needs. So, like what you see every time you do customer discovery, customer interviews, is like people are going to talk to you in terms of symptoms, but not they're not going to like decompose what they're experiencing, what they're feeling into why. So, like one of the important skills is you can kind of decompose those things and find the ultimate causes rather than just thinking in symptoms and then be an advocate for those root causes even if it goes in sometimes maybe slightly clashes with what these are telling directly so there has to be one thing then the other perspective you need to take into account is just the long-term vision of product this is a trap that's perhaps product-led companies honestly can fall into more readily that become too reactive because you're kind of like you know trapped in this like short circuits, which is cy- short iteration cycles, which is fine. But at the same time, I think that if you want to be really, really successful and dominate your own niche, there has to be, in certain aspects, there has to be this element of, for a lack of a better word, being visionary and saying, okay, this is how we're not, here we're not reacting to the market, but here we're going to be shaping the market. And this is always going to be, like, there's going to, always going to be a tension between the needs of the users and this vision. And a good leader, like, especially a good product leader, is going to be one that manages to balance both of those. And it does in such a way that it's kind of transparent to everyone on the team and that everyone on the team can then kind of take this as inputs when they're pondering various trade-offs they have to do during their work. Brilliant. Loved how you explained it, especially this rivalry between, like, what customers said and, like, what the visioner is. So that was a very, very, very good point from our side. So tell us, in the introduction, we talked a lot about Metabase, your recent success there. And can you talk more about the evolution of leadership at Metabase? Because that case is especially fascinating to us. Of course. This goes entirely to Samir, the CEO of Metabase. But like the leadership culture at Metabase had this very, on the one hand, easygoing approach but at the same time, also profound. And what I mean with that is, you know, we, we were never overly building up people as leaders and this kind of notion of leadership, but it was most of it 
I think that the leadership at Metabase was fundamentally viewed in the prism of what we called meta work. So, and this was this kind of idea of actually putting intentional care and effort into thinking about how we do work and improving that work. So you kind of, you know, we were always kind of asking ourselves questions like, okay, what were the things that obviously went wrong or where we felt that there was friction, where we're losing time, where there were blockers, and then trying to address those. And I think it's kind of like a fundamental, like this was one of the fundamental building blocks. And then kind of leadership arises from that because it's, you know, if you remember what I was talking about previously about how I think that one of the main qualities of a leader is enabling their team. And it's kind of like meta work is exactly that. It's kind of this principle of enabling both people you kind of that report to you and also like for each individual themselves and the team kind of how they can better themselves and how they can work better. Another, I think, very important component was, and again, what, what I said, it was like very um, low-key and relaxed, that we were all subscribing to this like, notion that for the most part, people have in them somewhere between four and six hours of productive time in a day. And so the question is just, what is the minimal amount of time we need to spend to actually access all of those four to six hours? So, like, we, you know, at Metabase, I was there for four years. We've never had, you know, death marches. We've never pulled all-nighters and stuff like that because it was, unnecessary, no, it was unnecessary because how we structured work, but it was also something that was frowned upon because if you need to do that, that was a clear sign that things were going wrong because it was grossly inefficient. You know, if you're founding hypothesis is that people can be productive for six hours and you're working for 12. That means we're like running at 50% efficiency, which is fundamentally unacceptable. And then, you know, so there was this natural tendency to not do that. And I think that kind of then obviously led to way better work-life balance, way better retention, just kind of overall happiness, and I think also productivity. Kind of to try to now sum up again, like how, so I would say that the leadership investment was very kind of bottom up in some ways, you know, kind of just finding a few powerful components and then recombining them in various ways. And just kind of like super top down and like, I'll read a ton of leadership books and then implement this and that and stuff like that. Um, oh, and, but the, the third component was quite important. It kind of it ties into meta work, but I will kind of flag it because I thought it was kind of brilliant. We had weekly one-on-ones for half an hour. And it's kind of like a frequency that for many people sounds incomprehensibly high. Like, what are you talking about if you have one-on-one each week? And that was exactly the point, that after a few of those one-on-ones, you exhaust the superficial topics, and then you start to dig deeper. And it kind of opens this space that you actually can explore where are my blockers, what are my needs, what are my wants, why am I happy? So this culture, every time those one-on-ones would start with the question, are you happy? And that was like it. And it was intentionally vague and open because it was a question not just about are you happy working at Metabase, are you happy with work, but also are you happy in life? Because like it or not, that will have a certain impact on how you do. And it's important to have this reference frame at the beginning because you can then, you know, for someone who says that, yeah, I'm quite happy what I'm doing here, but overall, like my life currently is a mess, then you will know that this will have a certain, that it will leave marks and all the like subsequent analysis this person does. And it also did, I felt that it created an environment where people really felt like they can open up. This was also another component. I'm really bad with this, on this podcast with numbering. You say three things, I tell you two. Now I say two things and I'm already number four. But so number four. So also we had a very strict culture of not blaming people. We tried to understand why something happened, but then 
when issues arose, we usually kind of deflect them. For instance, one thing we had was we had this document we called the DAO Visionic Metabase, which talked in large part about how we kind of we make trade-offs and how we think about stuff like testing and quality and so forth. And oftentimes when a failure arose, we were just kind of then like this DAO of engineering was actually the lightning rod for the mistake because the problem was fundamentally first that this was not something we have anticipated in that document and therefore it wasn't clear how to do it. So you kind of, you know, you, you blame the, in some ways you blame the process and from that you blame the lack of communication it was not clear rather than blaming an individual. And because of that, what happened was that people didn't felt put on the spot and they opened way more. If you contrast this to something like having a one-on-one once per quarter, it's a completely different dynamic because you feel way more pressed and, you know, kind of trying to justify yourself and maybe that's also tied into your promotions and that. And like this one-on-one just become something that people fear rather than something that feels like that I am being uplifted and I am advancing through those one-on-ones. So the relation factor, awesome. Simon, I do have three follow-up questions to this meta answer that you just provided. First of all, tell us in very simple words, what is DAO engineering? What does it stand for? It's kind of this like tongue-in-cheek name, you know, Dao Jing, that like Chinese philosophy that's in a lot of ways kind of like slightly cryptic or paradoxical in some way. And you kind of unraveling those paradoxes, what leads you to enlightenment for lack of a better word but it was kind of like a fun name but essentially it was how we do things you know like for all those things where it, it in some ways it was a, it wasn't maybe a process per se but it was more how we make decisions what we value and how we make trade-offs obviously you can't cover everything but this kind of general guidelines of you know where are we willing to kind of look the other way because still you're a small team you can't do everything perfectly but there is a question like, you know, how do I pick my battles? And this is something that shouldn't be, you shouldn't be thinking about this every time. Yes, there are cases where it, you need to kind of rethink that, but oftentimes it's kind of like a, a burden and we should just have like a common standard of how we view those things. And the, the DAO of Visioneering and Metabase was a document that kind of tried to provide for that. Alrighty, so not exactly standard operating procedure, but something which uh, enables you to fight the battles that should have been won, the battles that really matter. That's all right. Thanks for explaining that. So what we talked about in the introduction was that you started out as this extremely small team, right? And you call these high leverage teams. And it sounds great. It sounds like a team of A players, a team of like MVPs, but in reality, how do we build high leverage teams? How do we select people who will have the capacity to work like this? I think it's not about picking people. I think any team can be led and organized in a way of what I would deem to being a high leverage or like very high efficiency team. I think it's fundamentally about a couple of things. One is that you organize work in a way where every team member has a high degree of ownership and agency. With that, I mean, like, you don't have, like, five people working on a single feature, but, like, you always kind of own something as end-to-end as your skills allow you to and kind of from the beginning. And, like, at Metabase, the expectation was that once you joined, like, if a, when a developer joined, in ideally the same day or worse the next day, your first, like, PR should already be... um 
add it to the main branch. So it's kind of like very quickly and for now, like we were expecting it to like write code that gets that becomes part of the code base and gets shipped to the customers. And so we had like each of us had a large chunk of ownership, obviously because also there was just you know, five, six people in engineering. So you kind of by necessity, but I think that this was also is a good design. It is a good way of going forward. Very often I see for my taste, way too big teams working on a way too small of a problem. And that it's not just wasteful, it's the also problem is that it just makes people, I think, kind of less satisfied because you don't have this sense of ownership, you don't have a sense of building something, and it's also just in always it kind of disperses sense of responsibility because yeah, so this person, that person, like we'll do it kind of together, and then everything is like a, is a team effort, but then way less magically happens because everyone is waiting on someone else and you just create, you know, like this kind of, you then the more people you have working on something and collaborating, the more you have to invest in processes. And while I am in general a fan of processes, one thing that has to be recognized is that every time you introduce a process, you also introduce a certain amount of friction and those frictions do add up. So if you can remove the need for a process by not having an interface between two people, just one person, you are going to be that much more productive. So that was one thing. The other one was the aforementioned wet meta work. You know, it's that it's a super big cliche, especially in this kind of like, I don't know, hustler Twitter, entrepreneur Twitter, that, you know, that, that small 1% change every day and then for 365 days a year. And then it's like 37 fold increase or some crap like that. But there is a logic behind it. And MetaWork preys exactly on that. It tries to find like small inefficiencies, that, but still, if you fix them and if you do that intentionally, those small changes will snowball. And that, again, makes a massive difference in how productive you can be. Cool. So to be very concrete, for people who are new to MetaWork, to be very pragmatic, how do you start with MetaWork? What are kind of like rituals or habit that a person can adopt in order to start pursuing MetaWork? In general, I don't think there's like a single practice. Like I will tell you the one I use and it works quite well for me. And that's just very simple introspection. And it's the same thing I also do with my teams when I run teams. But essentially, once a week, I will look back to the past week and I'm just going to start asking myself questions like, what went well? What didn't went well? What stressed me? What caused me anxiety? What made me feel bad? What made me happy? What succeeded more than I expected? Where I spent more time? What were unexpected blockers? Where were frictions? What frustrated me? And, and so forth. And which of those questions is to ask why, why, why a couple of times. I write all this down and then that this part is important. And then... I start looking for patterns across multiple weeks because if you do, you know if you just like list these things and then like okay somehow doing meta work I'm going to start fixing all that what happens is you, you become way too reactive instead of finding patterns and fixing the most high impact stuff you just you know are all over the place so it's important to take your time and have this you know discontinuity between both and then just orient yourself in like longer arcs and like, okay so I see that this is kind of a recurring pattern that I always let's say underestimate how long something's going to take. And then it makes sense for me to kind of to um, update my beliefs about how to do those estimates. Or maybe I see there's something I'm consistently good at, but I'm not doing that much. And then it makes, maybe makes sense I do more of that and kind of so forth. So this kind of, it is important to have like those two separate steps and not, and also in some ways, this, you know, like when you just do the introspection, you through, it should be almost meditative in the sense that you really just purely focus on that. Not you know immediately jumping to how I'm going to fix that. Just like stay with the kind of with the questions, with the analysis. Don't try to kind of fix that immediately because otherwise you're just going to kind of mess up the measurement as it were. So like those need to be two separate steps. And then when you decide to act, 
interact with the kind of a larger picture and also kind of, you know, it's fine. You probably have like some short-term goals and long-term goals, like different arcs you pursue, which is completely fine, but that part should be more systematic rather than completely reactive to the things that pop up. And another thing that's very important with this is it should be done constantly. You know, if you do it once, yes, you will get some value, but the most value starts probably after you've been doing it for two, three months, and then you start to see the full power of it. It is something that it has to become a habit to be at its full force. Awesome. Totally embracing that. I think I will spend some time on Sunday just like meditating and doing meta work. I think that would benefit me greatly. So another great habit that we can incorporate in our lives, even though you don't acknowledge that this would be a habit. Alrighty. So we talked a lot about meta work so far, but Are there any other leadership traits that you find extremely important to be like a great product-led leader in the new reality, meaning post-COVID and whatever is going on right now? Are there any other stuff that you personally think matter? I've briefly touched on this, but now I'll make it explicit. I think what fundamentally is currently an issue for a lot of leadership and for other organizations is that they make decisions too slowly. I really like kind of this model of the OODA loop. So observe, orient, decide, act. It's from some military theory about how they were training fighter pilots, I think, in the 1950s, but then it was found its way into business. And it's a very useful framework to kind of think about how am I actually making decisions as a leader. And what I see is that people just don't have a high enough frequency of doing like the first steps of observing and orienting themselves. And it's like a, a very good example of this is just thinking in quarters. You know, like, okay, we set the goals for a quarter, then we just rush through and try to hit those goals. And that can be fine in certain cases, but it's more like, you know, that shouldn't be the end goal that I now linearly go and charge towards the goals, but rather when I set my goals really well and when I have a very good understanding of both the market around me and what's happening in the company, as a consequence of that, what will happen is that I will very linearly go to my goals. But oftentimes that you simply have made mistakes in the past of like when you were making decisions and those need to be corrected. And if the you know frequency with which you correct this is every three months or maybe even half a year or something like that, you're just not reacting fast enough to what's happening. Because one thing we do have to acknowledge is that just the speed of change in the world, how fast the market moves, how fast the market changes is rapidly, rapidly increasing. And that inherently then does shorten the, this kind of optimal decision time span. But of course, like the problem with this is, and why it's, I think in some ways, it's also an art. It is a skill, but I think, you know, if you talk about kind of like a notion of like a natural world leader, it's also someone who will be, manage to kind of navigate this well. Because on the other hand, you also you don't want to be too reactive because what then happens is that you become way too short-term focused and you're just trying to, you're always way too much on this kind of exploitation phase rather than also having times for an exploration phase. And while that might in the short run produce good results, in the long run, you are kind of missing the bigger picture. And oftentimes what that means is that you become way more open to attacks from either newcomers on the market or just you're going to get squished out into like a less and less profitable niche or something like that because the market essentially outmaneuvers you. 
So it, it will outmaneuver you if you move too fast, but it can also outmaneuver you if you move if you too rapidly move because then you're not able to make those kind of big jumps, you know, from one local optimum to the next local optimum, and again you get stuck. So you kind of have to balance between those. And I think that's like one of the fundamental skills. And it's like probably the one that's by far the hardest to teach for a modern leader. Wow, that's a lot to think about. So leadership when it comes to changes of leadership it kind of appears that they would be somehow card coded in the culture of a company it seems to me at least like very biasly that this would be changes that are like super profound and take time but what would be some actionable recommendations how to develop and implement new leadership strategies that are more aligned to what we were talking about previously for sure, there is a certain element of interaction between overall company culture and leadership, and it goes like it's kind of bi-directional. And where I would be looking for in implementing changes again, if you remember back when I was trying to decompose the leadership at MetaBase, and I said it felt very bottom-up. I think that's kind of the right approach if you want to enact changes. You know, don't can just like complete reorganization. Now we're going to be like a different organization altogether with different values, and that just First of all, it doesn't work, and oftentimes it's also just kind of like super forced and cringy. What I would be looking for is, you know, implementing very concrete practices that were completely bottom up. So something like, you know, I said this meta work practice, like those introspections, doing shorter, like doing short, high frequency one on ones, shortening iteration cycles. All those things do not take a lot of buying. They don't change you know, the day-to-day that much, but at the same time, what they will produce is like this accumulative effect is going to be way outsized compared to the disruption they're going to cause to the day-to-day running of the company. Fantastic. So that can literally start with an individual with, I wouldn't say a manager because I don't dare to, but with a leader making some very profound decisions. So that could be like instantly implemented and within months or so it would show some sort of tangible impact in your words, right? Yes. And, you know, it's also like the beauty of this kind of small tools is that they can also be repurposed for different things. For instance, like I mentioned the one-on-ones we were doing in Metabase. And like those one-on-ones in large, just like half of them was precisely going through this introspection meditation I mentioned. But then, and he said, okay, so you, you you chart down the main things. And then what happens is that you get essentially two maps out of this. One is a map of, you know, points that an individual struggles with and maybe like opportunities and direction they should be moving. But also, if you look at this across, you know, like if you do this one-on-one with everyone on your team, you will also see recurring patterns among different people. And those are things that are blocking the entire team. And that's where you should probably interject in the form of processes or tools or something like that. And what that then creates is that, you know, I'm using kind of the same tool to level up my people to find inefficiencies and improve those and uh, getting a better understanding of where we are. And so it's like access doesn't like a feedback system for me because I can then, when I start to decompose why things are happening the way they're happening, it's immediately going to then feed into me being better at assessing how long things are going to take, what's the complexity of different things and where are we good, where aren't we good and things like that. All this from one simple tool with a very, very limited time investment. Cool. So we are wrapping up this conversation. And from what you said so far, I had this weird mental picture that when you say meditation, I think about candles. I think about like inner peace. But 
meditation probably for you is some sort of another state. So how do you achieve it? Are you able to achieve it by yourself or is it better to have somebody to guide you how to get into this business meditative state? When I say meditation, what I fundamentally mean is this radical focus on the now where everything else falls away. You know, it's also like when you're doing meditations, again, like you should be like a normal meditation, you should be in the moment. And the same thing is here as kind of, you're just focused on the thing at hand rather than also trying to think five steps backwards and five steps forwards. It's still like, if you notice, like there's a certain friction with something I said before, because I said, okay, like you should go back to the whys. And yes. I do think that, but like, you know, do this kind of systematically, don't jump around. The problem is like where people, well, fail is too strong a word, but where I think they're not using these kind of methods to their full potential is that already you're thinking about like three steps back, like three potential whys and some consequences and how I'm going to remedy those rather than focus on one level. And then consciously they said, okay, now I'm going to take this level away forget about it and move one Y level back and then just focus on that. But then also when I'm thinking at that level, I'm, I forget about the cause that made me think about this. I will forget about the impacts because I don't want those to cloud my judgment, but just look at that one as such and then move to the next one. And that, that's why I kind of, I feel it's sort of like this meditative practice. You're very focused on one part, this one thing at the same time, rather than immediately jumping solutions. And I think this is especially for instance, a tendency that people with engineering backgrounds, I'm one of them, have is that we tend to jump way too quickly to trying to problem solve. And in a lot of contexts, that's, uh, I mean, it's a delightful and lovely character trait, but here it does actually work against you because it does then cloud your observations and you don't get as much from them. And then you might also, because you're kind of thinking solutions, you might also not ask the, all the right questions to really get to the core of it. Right. So from that perspective, maybe when you are first trying this concept out, um, just my personal takeaway, it's better if it is like a guided process so that we don't get stuck in our own minds. I don't know, just uh, my personal assumption, but feel free to comment. No, absolutely. I think it's a great way that you start with this. I mean, for the rest, like for someone who is in a leadership position, obviously you can jumpstart everyone on your team by you being the person who's kind of guiding this and asking questions and also being the you know sounding an alarm when the person starts to think about like too over the place and jumps between causes and impacts and so forth and then if you don't have someone to work with a peer or maybe like if you have a mentor or something that's like have someone that guides you through that and you know it's, it's a very simple thing so like, oh, i don't need that, that much guidance and it's true like i think that the value is not that much in guidance it's you know like posing questions or something but the more the value is that you have someone who tells you when you're off track and accountability like to do this on a regular basis because it's fun to do it once or twice but to develop habit we yeah. all know that it's a slippery slope Yes. And then it's, it's very easy if you're just on your own. It's very easy to be, ah, it's kind of, it's good enough. So you do need to have someone who is in that sense, like stern, be like, no, like kind of go deeper. You're thinking about too many things at the same time. Don't think about solutions. Just think about the problem harder, you know, form hype, maybe also like just form hypothesis about the problem and how we can test that. That's also kind of an important part. You can do like essentially the same experimentation you would do with product development or marketing. Like you can do the same kind of experimentation with yourself. But, you know, you form a hypothesis and then we have an issue and then we go to, okay, now we try to formulate an experiment with which we can 
you know, prove or disprove this hypothesis. And then that's something that you might be kind of then more focused on the next few weeks and something that then kind of you come back to with the next, uh, with the next few of these introspection sessions. Ah, that's freaking awesome. Thank. I do feel like a human guinea pig if I would try to apply this on my life, but it does make so much sense in terms of just like being a little bit more objective, a little bit less butthurt and a little bit more purposeful of what we are doing and what can we do better instead of being stuck in our zone of ego comfort and all the other attributes of humanity that we have, because at the end of the day, we are all human. So Simon, last but not least, how can our listeners connect to you and just like continue this awesome conversation that we have had throughout the podcast? Well, I'm most active on Twitter with at asbelak, or you can also find me on LinkedIn and like Simon Belak. I'm happy to chat about this stuff, obviously. I also try to participate as much as I can on the product like um, Slack channel. So the, I guess that's also one venue for everyone who is already part of this fantastic community. Brilliant. Thank you so much. And instead of goodbye, give us a good challenge. Give us a good challenge for the audience. What can we do in order to implement what we learn throughout the podcast into our lives to be better, more envisioned leaders? It's very simple because I think being a good leader fundamentally starts with yourself and also knowing yourself well. And because I think it's such a fantastic tool, I would just say start with this like introspection sessions. Everyone can immediately implement this. Just pick a time, but also like, you know, block it off on your calendar. It's not something you can do, oh, I'm just going to do it randomly under the shower and then like when I'm commuting or something. No, like this is part of your work. That's why we call it meta work because it is an important and integral part of the work. So, you know, block out the time, do it, and it's something you can implement this week. And then, so that's kind of challenge number one. And then the stretch goal is keep up doing this for a month. And then the next stretch goal is keep doing this for three months. And after that, I don't even have to set you more goals because you already you will experience the full power of this, and it's going to become something that you can't even think about, you kind know, of running your life without. Fantastic. So later on, you can talk about the experience of yours when you have done the three months of practice with Simon on LinkedIn or on Twitter. And I'm so thrilled to have you. I know it was not like this typical marketing style podcast that we recorded today, but I do believe that it was very useful for all the entrepreneurs, all the leaders and all the managers as well who are trying to just like transition from being reactive towards proactive and really purposeful. So I thank you a lot, Simon, for this conversation. It was freaking awesome. And I can't wait to talk again. Thank you for having me, Maya. It was a blast as always. And I do hope that I was a little bit helpful to this wonderful community. So thanks. You sure were. Thanks for listening to us. And don't forget to subscribe, to like the episode and to connect with Simon. Bye.